We're going to read from verse 35 to verse 41 of Mark chapter 1. Beginning of verse 35, it says this, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we come before you again. And Father, we seek you, seek for you and for your blessing this morning. Father, we ask you that you would enable us by the power of the Holy Spirit to hear what you would have to say to us. Father, each of us in this room has different circumstances, different struggles and different needs. And Father, I pray that you would teach us by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. Father, we pray that you would work in all of our hearts. Father, if there is one person in this room that does not know you, that has never bowed the knee before the living God, in faith and repentance and a striving to follow you. Father, we pray this morning that you would work in that person's heart. Father, we pray that you would awaken faith and repentance in their heart this morning. Father, we ask you again for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Man is created by God for the purpose of fellowship with God, his creator. That's why we were created. Man is creating God's image to reflect back to God the glories of God in the highest of his physical created order. We are created in the image and likeness of God. And God, when he looks at us, sees reflected back to himself all the glories of his creation in his image and in his likeness. Now, sadly and tragically, sin has broken that fellowship with God. From God-centered, we have turned aside and become utterly self-centered and selfish. We think of ourselves before everybody else. From the worship of God to worshiping ourselves and driven to satisfy ourselves beyond and before everybody else. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternally begotten from the Father, became the God-man. He came to this earth and took on flesh with the purpose of restoring that sin-destroying fellowship with God. In other words, he came here to, to put away sin and restore us back into a place where we could have fellowship with God again. We could have communion with God again. He did it. By Jesus dying on a cross for our sin. He did it by Jesus becoming our substitute. By taking our rightful place on the cross. And absorbing all of the righteous wrath of God. God most holy. And Jesus Christ purchased, has purchased our salvation. And reconciled us back to God. And as Rick was pointing out, the gospel is that beautiful combination of repentance and faith, the grace of God and the love of God all sort of put together and repenting of our sin and being truly sorry for our sin by believing in Jesus Christ and trusting God to keep the promises he has made to us. And by following Christ, that relationship can be restored and we can know again 
what we were designed to have and enjoy for all of eternity, a relationship with God. We have been reconciled by God. We have been reconciled to God. And we have been reconciled to enjoy God and have fellowship and communion with him. Now, in the gospel so far, the book so far, it's kind of been fast-paced and it's very strongly oriented toward the message of the gospel. The days of Jesus, as you read through the first chapter, are very fast-paced. He's baptized and immediately driven by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. And he's tempted in the wilderness and he's preaching the Galilee and calling disciples, disciples who are <laughs> calling disciples disciples who immediately follow Jesus and then immediately he enters the synagogue on a Sabbath morning and he's teaching in the synagogue and immediately the news spreads all around and immediately again he enters Simon's house and he's healing Simon's mother-in-law and healing and casting out demons until late at night and the pace of the chapter just rolls along really fast and it's added, it's sort of emphasized by the word immediately over and over again, immediately this, immediately that. And they sort of hit this thing going, wow, it's going so fast. And all of a sudden, it just sort of slams to a stop. And in verse 35, while everybody else is still asleep, Jesus rises very early in the morning, and he goes off to pray. And you know, the pace of life, as you read that, is like our pace of life, isn't it? We're running from one thing to another. I spent my week this week running around from job to interviews to this and that. And you get to the end of the week, and Friday morning I got up, and it was like, Wow, I've only had six minutes sleep. I just felt so worn out. And I'm walking around going, how am I going to get through this week? And everything seems so fast-paced. And the world we live in is so wound up and it's going so quickly and it seems like it's trying to drive out away from us that one thing that we need more than anything else is to spend time with our Savior and our God. And here is Jesus. Everybody's asleep. Disciples asleep. Simon's mother-in-law, for the first time, had a good night's sleep. She's healed. She's restored. People have come by droves to the doors of Simon's house. They've been healed. The demons have been cast out. All those demoniacs who had all that struggle for that time prior to this, they're all sleeping soundly, except for one man. I love what happens. He gets up while it's still dark in the early morning, and Jesus leaves the house. You can see him almost tiptoeing out the door and slipping away, and the, and the darkness is still there. Maybe way off in the distance, there's a little crack of dawn shining above the horizon, but he slips away in a very secluded place. The Bible says he is praying there. No doubt he's tired. No doubt he needed some more sleep, but he chose to get up and go and spend time with his father. Now, in the verses before us, we have kind of set out for us what it means to live the servant's life. In verse number 35, we have there the power for ministry. Prayer is the power for how we do our ministry. If you're involved in ministry of any kind. By the way, if you're a Christian, congratulations, you're involved in ministry. Everybody is in ministry for the Lord. It doesn't matter what you do, whether you're a carpenter, doctor, accountant, pastor, preacher, whatever. You're all involved. We are all involved in ministry. And the power for that ministry comes in prayer. Verse 35, the servant's life is prioritized with prayer. The second thing that helps us understand the servant's life is this. In verse number 38, he came with a purpose to preach the gospel. The servant's life is purposed with proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means it doesn't matter where you are again. If you're working cleaning cars or nailing skirts and arcs on a wall or you're doing deliveries or you're doing accounting or engineering, designing roads, whatever it is, 
If you're a mom at home with neighbors and kids, you have a purpose in life that transcends and goes above every other thing, and that is to preach the gospel, to use the opportunities that God has put in front of you wherever he takes you to proclaim the gospel, no matter what you're doing. The third thing is this. The servant's life is compelled by compassion for the lost. It's not, by the way, his only compulsion. His compulsion, far greater than that, is to glorify God in everything he's doing. But he has a purpose there, and he has a compulsion. And Jesus moved with compassion, reached out, and touched this leper, and he was willing to heal him. And the life of ministry we live, the life of sharing the gospel wherever we go, it must be one that is not only compelled by glorifying God with everything we do, it's also compelled by compassion for those around us. If you look around you and you see the sinners walking by, the unsaved in your day, in your week, in front of your house, in your job place, in your office, in your school, wherever it is, and there isn't a moment when your heart is just filled with compassion for these people who do not know Jesus, there's something wrong. Jesus was moved with compassion to heal this man. Well, those three things... The servant's life prioritized with prayer. The second thing, the servant's life purposed with proclaiming the gospel. And thirdly, the servant's life compelled by compassion for the lost is not my sermon outline. I just wanted to lay those before you. Look up in shock and horror. No, it's not. What I want to do is lay those out. Who would like a note sheet? Just, just, just looking at me going... I do have a note sheet so you can follow along and make it a little easier for you. But what I want to talk about this morning, what I want to focus on this morning is just the first one of those things. The servant's life and ministry prioritized with prayer in verses 35 and 37. I want you to notice Jesus' need for prayer. Something that's just a very interesting thought to kind of get in the back of your mind here. Jesus is God, omnipotent, omniscient, and sovereign. Jesus had no need to pray. In fact, being God, he could not pray. Now, you're immediately going, wait a minute, just hold on a second time out, preacher boy. It says right there that he went and he prayed. And you're absolutely right, he did. And the reality is, in his divine nature, he could not pray because prayer by its very nature and very essence is the appealing to a higher authority, a higher power, a higher person for the things that we need and desire and delight in. So Jesus, being God, had nobody that he could really pray to. Yes, he could pray to his Father, but he is still God. That intimate relationship that they had before the foundation of the world is still going on. But Jesus is not only God, he is also fully and perfectly man. And as a man, he needed and he desired to be in prayer, to be in communication with his father. He said in places in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that he sought his father's will, that he might do it in everything he did. He sought his father's mind, that he might speak the things that the father gave him to do. So Jesus in his divine nature, did not need to pray, but Jesus, in his human nature, needed to be with, in, with his Father, needed to be in prayer to seek his Father's mind and his Father's will that he might know what he should do for ministry. In fact, as you finish the story, and the disciples come and get him and say, hey, everybody's looking for you. We've got to go back and work over there. Jesus says, no, 
Let's go to other towns that I may preach the gospel, for that is what I have come forth for. That's why I've come forth, is to preach the gospel. He had a conviction about the direction for his ministry after he had spent time in prayer. But we have to kind of understand that Jesus, this is where it gets tricky, is Jesus has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And in the, uh, one of the councils back in the 400s, I believe, I can't remember which one now, they defined that dual nature of Christ. They said they are inextricably linked, but they can't be blended. In other words, you, you put them together side by side. You can't take them apart, but you can't blend them together. And it's one of those things where you kind of go, oh, etc. and headache, here we come. You just can't quite get your head around what it means. But the reality is he had those two natures. And when he went to pray, it's kind of a beautiful thing because what he's doing in prayer is, is human nature is crying out to God. Again, I'm on dangerous ground. I don't want to divide the natures. But his human nature is crying out to God for direction, for wisdom, for strength. Even in the garden, he's praying that God might, if possible, remove that cup from him. And his divine nature, if you like, is enjoying that same sweet fellowship and communion that he had with the Father before the world began. And Jesus is praying there because he, as a man, needs to pray. He's praying there because, as God, he is enjoying that fellowship that they once had before. And he's praying that he might set us an example and show us how we are to live the life that we're called to live. There is a desperate need for us to pray. Jesus sought his Father's will for his ministry, his words, and his deeds. He enjoyed again in those moments the perfect fellowshipping harmony that he had enjoyed prior to his becoming flesh and blood. Jesus needed to pray. And Jesus sets an example for it us and what we're supposed to do. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're a believer and you're struggling to know how to pray... I think everybody in this room could go, yeah, you know what? I struggle sometimes to know how to pray. I struggle with my prayer life and having a disciplined prayer life. Well, this message is for you. If you're a believer and you long to have a deeper, more intimate fellowship with the living God, and this message is for you. If you struggle to understand prayer, if it seems like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, it seems like sometimes your prayers are just being ignored, then listen, this message is for you. From Jesus' example and the disciples' actions, I want to give us seven lessons. Probably won't get through them all, but we'll try to get through all seven little lessons for the believer's life of prayer. By the way, you don't have a prayer life. You have a life of prayer. You say, what's the big difference? A prayer life is one part of your life, but a life of prayer is the whole thing. We are to be people who are constantly, unceasingly in prayer before our God. And we're going to look at how that's possible. So there's seven lessons I've got for you there. Number one, prayer is a costly exercise. Number two, prayer is a sacrificial exercise. Number three, prayer is an... Sorry. Prayer is a costly exercise. Prayer is scratch out sacrificial and put in solitary exercise. Thirdly, prayer is an unceasing exercise. Fourthly, prayer is a diligent seeking and searching for answers from God. Fifthly, prayer must be a diligent seeking for God himself. And sixthly, prayer is a faith-filled exercise. And seventhly, prayer is the enjoyment of fellowship and communion with God. And you're wondering how in the world we're going to get through seven points. Not sure. We'll see. 
Prayer is, first of all, a costly exercise and discipline. Look what it says there in verse number 35. In the early morning, while it's still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and went to a secluded place to pray. Listen, all the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life will cost you something. Whoever said to themselves, you know what, I'm going to find some time, or I'm going to find time to do this other thing. Who's ever found time to do anything? Nobody. Nobody finds time. There isn't any extra time in your life. The reality is, our lives, like Jesus, are full from start to finish. doesn't matter if you're a mom at home, or you're an engineer, or accountant, doctor, whatever it is. Your lives are packed full. And the reality is, if a prayer is going to be a part of our life, if prayer is going to be an exercise, an outflow of our life, we're going to have to make some costly decisions to set aside time for prayer. Every single spiritual discipline that we face, that we need to be involved in, whether it's reading our Bibles, memorizing Scripture, time with the Lord in prayer, are costly disciplines. They're going to take some time. And like Jesus, who needed to sleep, he got up. He sacrificed that time in sleeping. He sacrificed that time that he could have spent in the house and he got up and he went away to a secluded place and he prayed there. Like any growing relationship, there is a necessity for time to be spent alone. A newly married couple in the Bible, I don't know if you knew this, if a guy was married and he went into the army and they'd say, if you went, were you married? I was married a month ago, out you go. And they'd send him home. He had to go back and spend a year with his wife to spend time with her to build that relationship. When we first got married, we were told, listen, don't get involved in too many things. In that first year of your marriage, you need that time to gel and to bond together, to build and solidify that marriage relationship. Guys, just married and just about to be married, I'll give you the same piece of advice. Don't get too involved in things. You need that time alone. You know what? It's exactly the same in our Christian spiritual relationship with the Father in heaven. We need that time to develop that relationship, listening to each other and speaking and responding to each other, learning from each other. No, we don't teach God anything, but we learn from him. We spend time in his presence, and Jesus needed to get up early and go and spend some time and sacrifice something to be with the Lord. And the reality is, listen, you will never find the time. You have to make it. And that may mean that you learn to turn the TV off. It means that you maybe have to set your alarm for an hour earlier. It may mean you need to put that book that you're enjoying so much down. I've got a stack of books, right? Like, no, no joke. Right? Heather will tell you. That tall, on my, beside my chair, and I read. And it's amazing. I can find so much time to read a Spurgeon sermon or a Lloyd-Jones sermon or some other book on leadership or whatever. And my Bible sits there and I know, you know what, the Lord, I can hear his voice saying, come and speak with me. Come and spend time with me. And even in some of the really good things, we need to stop and go, hey, what's the priority here? And the priority is that we need to be spending time with God in prayer. It's a costly discipline. Think about cost and what's involved. Daniel was a great example of this. He knew exactly what it meant when he went upstairs that day after the king had made the great edict. Anybody who prays to anybody but the king for the next 30 days, he'll be thrown into lion's den. And Daniel goes upstairs, opens the windows to his outside, and gets down. And in those days, they prayed like this on their knees with their hands lifted up. I think we should too, by the way. And he prayed out loud. 
And everybody heard him praying, and he knew as he began to pray, crying out to Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, that they would hear his voice and they would report him to the king because that's exactly what they wanted to do to start with. Prayer is a costly discipline. Jesus set aside time. He got up early while everybody was still asleep and spent time in prayer. Secondly, he departed to a secluded place. Prayer is a solitary exercise. It's a solitary thing. Yes, we meet together for prayer. And yes, there's some great fellowship. I love going to the prayer meetings on Wednesday night and Thursday morning. And we sit around and we have fellowship together as a company of people praying together. But listen, prayer in a public group doesn't start as prayer in public. It starts as prayer in private. And if you and I can't learn to be alone with God and to pour out our hearts to God in private, we will not pray truly when we are together as a group. Prayer is a solitary exercise. It requires a willingness to be totally alone with God. You anybody here hooked up to Sermon Audio? A couple of you are at Sermon Audio. Go on, Lauren, Sermon Audio. Look up a great sermon by Paul Washer called Pray and Be Alone with God. I think it's about an hour and a half long, but it's excellent. He goes through the Lord's preaching the people to pray in Luke chapter 6, I think it is. I'd love to take his whole message and just put it all in here, but when we be here for two hours and you would not like that very much at all. But it's a great message. And listen, prayer is about the willingness to be totally alone with God. We live in a world that's full of distractions, don't we? I was watching an old black and white movie. Uh, it was one of these, I had, Cameron got a, a collection of old Hitchcock movies, black and white. And I just noticed, watch the movie, and it, it's kind of funny and sort of corny at the same time because it's so old. And you realize there are great sections of the film where there's no background music and no extra sound, no synthesizer going. It's just the people talking. When they actually walk across the room, you hear the clunk, 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 clunk of the footsteps. And I thought, oh, isn't that amazing? I just realized that in our world, in the movies we watch and television we watch today, which is a stupid thing to do anyway, but whatever, everything's got background noise. Everything's got filler sounds. You watch young guys and they're studying their, for their math exam and they've got two earbuds in their ear and they're studying hard and the music's boom, 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 you know, in their ears. And you go down the streets and you hear everybody's got their radio on and the music's playing. And you know what one of the biggest problems with our society, with our culture, our generation is? We've lost the ability to be alone and be quiet. To sit quietly in the presence of God. We were away for our anniversary uh, probably 10 years ago now. We've been away since then, don't worry. And uh, we were in this spot, and it was really, really uh, secluded up on top of this mountaintop in British Columbia, and there was this kind of an inlet, and uh, the the little cabin we were in was set on this top of the rock, and you walk out about, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 feet, and it just dropped off sheer about 200 feet to the ocean below. And it was the middle of winter, and it was cloudy, and the, the clouds were sort of in there, and it was... The place was deserted. No one else was there but us. And I got up in the morning to read my Bible. And I sat there on the couch with my Bible. And there was nothing. Like the, there was just not a sound. There weren't birds crying. Like here you get in the morning the birds are going like mad. And it was almost like it made me feel weird. And I realized, you know what? We've lost the ability to be totally alone and totally quiet before God's presence. And Jesus made the point of getting up and going away and being totally alone, putting all the distractions away from him, putting all the the sounds that filled his day away and just spending time in solitary communion with his Father and his God. 
We need, brothers and sisters, to be spending time alone. John Knox was one of those uh, fiery reformers. He was a Scottish reformer back in the, I think, the 15 and 1600s, thereabouts. And uh, he used to rise every morning, in the mid- or in the middle of the night, actually. And his wife would wait, and she'd hear him get up and get out of bed, and he'd go off into his hallway and through the, their house, and he'd go into a room, and it'd be very cold and dark, and he would spend time there praying. And she would wait for a little while until she finally thought, you know, it's too long, and he was, he was sick, and he had other kind of problems. And she would go after him, and she would go to the door of the room where he was praying, and she could hear him on the other side of the door pouring out his heart to God. And she would knock on the door and say, John, honey, don't you think it's time to come back to bed? And he said, no, I have 3,000 to care for, and I do not know how it is with their souls. I must be before my God in prayer. And John Knox, one of the great leaders of the English Reformation, every single night got up and spent time alone with God in prayer. Hudson Taylor, another similar story. Uh, Some people traveled with him, and he was a very strange creature of habits. And they said around 2 o'clock every morning, you'd get up and you'd hear a scratch of of a match being struck on a thing and a candle being lit, and Hudson Taylor would get up, and he would spend several hours with his Bible open on his knees, enjoying and communing with God, one on one, alone with God. George Mueller, same thing. I heard a story years ago about this Chinese pastor. They put him in jail because he wouldn't stop singing the hymns and wouldn't stop preaching the gospel to everybody else in the prison because it was illegal to be a Christian, you know. And so they said, okay, fine. You want to sing the songs? You want to sing the hymns? And he said, yeah, I want to sing. I just, I want to worship the Lord. They said, fine. They took him outside the prison and they had an open latrine, which is like a big ditch with raw human sewage in there. And they took him and they lowered him down up to his waist in raw sewage and said, fine, you want to sing? Go ahead, sing. And they said that they leaned close to the walls. You could hear him singing in that undescribable muck. I come to the garden alone. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the son of God. I got the song all wrong. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And he sat there and shoveled that muck. While he was singing that song, he was so thrilled to just have some time to be alone with his God. And Jesus got up and he left the house to spend time alone with God. We need to learn that prayer is a solitary exercise to be alone with God. Thirdly, he was praying there. It's a continuous thing. The, the, the verb tense is very strange. It sort of talks about how he got up, he went, and then it says, was praying. It just changes into a present continuous or past continuous. So it's carrying on. Our prayer is to be a prayer life that's without ceasing. It's to be an exercise like breathing, both voluntary breathing and involuntary breathing. Prayer requires disciplined times, and it requires undisciplined times to pray. Times when we regularly set aside to stop and meet and speak with our God, to commune with Him. And those moments, whether it's you set apart 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock in the morning, or you set apart, if you're busy, if it's 6 o'clock to 6.10, Whatever it is, we set aside a time when we come together, not come together, we come before our God and meet with Him and pray with Him. It's also to be an ongoing thing, wherever we're doing, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. Three of the great Puritan men were sitting in a 
public house and they're having a meal together and they were discussing over their meal how it is that anybody could be praying without ceasing. How can you do that? And they wrestled back and forth and one said, you know, it's too busy. I got all this thinking and writing to do. Well, you know, it's too hard because I got so much preaching of the gospel to do. Another one said, listen, it's too hard. I got all these things going on in my life. I can't do it. And there was a servant girl and she's running back and forth with, you know, the meal and the food and the drink and so on. And finally she said, oh, sirs, I do that all the time. And these Puritan, you know, really smart guys, and they look at her and they said, well, tell us, how do you do that? And she said, well, you know, I get up in the morning and I dress myself and I pray that God will clothe me with his righteousness. And I come downstairs into the, the rooms down here and I sweep and I clean. And as I sweep and I clean with the broom and my mop and my rag, I pray that God will sweep and clean the filth of sin and disobedience out of my life. And I heard that and I thought, yeah, she's got it. She understood how to take every little part of her life, every little thing that she was doing, and turn it into a prompter for prayer. So I went to work, and I tried it. I thought, okay, I'm cutting wood. I'm cutting wood, right? Lord, teach me to walk a divided life. Lord, teach me to divide the word of God correctly. Went over, took my glue and my nails, and I'm, and I'm gluing up and nailing arcs and skirts on the wall of this house, and I'm banging away with the glue. And I thought, Lord, fasten the word of God, the truth of God, to my heart with glue and nails so it never gets free. Lord, as I'm driving down the road, Father, keep me walking on the straight and narrow way. Let your word light the path before me. And yeah, it's a discipline. And yeah, no, I didn't last very long. And my mind quickly wandered off to other things. But I discovered when I looked around in front of me, there are so many things. In fact, let me rephrase that. There's everything before you that can prompt you to pray. You're sitting on a chair. Father, we give you thanks this morning that we can rest in the finished work of Christ. I watch a man walk on the street and he's staggering drunk. Lord, give me compassion for the lost. Let me be filled with the spirit and under control of the spirit as that poor man is under control of alcohol. And so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. We're to be in prayer unceasing before God. It's to carry on day in, day out. It's to be as natural to us as breathing. By the way, you want a great tool for Bible for prayer, unceasing prayer? It's Bible memory. Calling back to mind scriptures and praying through them and meditating on them and turn them back into prayers of worship to the living God. It's to be prayer without ceasing. So we are, first of all, to be praying. It's a costly exercise. It's a solitary exercise. It's an unceasing exercise. And from the disciples' example, the words about them, we get four or five more lessons. Here we go. It says there in verse number 37, Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Notice the repetitions and how they work together. They searched for him. They found him. And they spoke with him. I thought, you know what? That's it. I was sitting in my office on Friday morning and I was crying out to the Lord, Lord, I want a message that's not just from my study, not just from exegesis, not just from things I've heard that I can put together. I want a message for the people of God, for all of us as a church, that is from your heart to all of us. And this is the phrase that just hit me like a ton of bricks. They searched for him. I thought, you know what? There is so much about prayer in that statement. They searched for him. Jesus had... uh, they searched for him and they, they found him and they said to him, and I want you to notice the next one is they searched for him. Just emphasize the word search there, okay? 
Jesus had withdrawn himself away from the disciples to pray. He had gone to a secluded place. And unlike our cities and towns, a a secluded place, sorry, it could have been a whole host of places. You think about rural Australia, right? You go, there's a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere or a little village. And it's all surrounded by empty fields. And there's all kinds of places that you could go. And a man, Devin, could walk off into the fields of rural Australia. And he could hide himself in thousands of places. There are so many places that Jesus could have hid himself. And what had to happen is they had to go and look for him. And you don't know how long it took. Maybe it took a few hours. Maybe it took part of a morning. Maybe it took the whole day. And they searched unceasingly until they found him. And here's the point. There was a desire to find Jesus. They had to get to him. There was a desire to be with him again. They'd seen him. They'd followed him. They'd heard his message. They'd watched him cast out a demon. They watched him heal sicknesses. They watched him preaching and teaching the word of God. There was a desire to find him and be with him, to speak with him again. And they searched because they first had a desire for him. Let me ask you the hard question. Is your desire to be with Jesus, to sit down and commune with him one-on-one? It's not just a heavenly thing. It's a now thing. It's a thing we can enjoy right now face-to-face by faith, yes, but face-to-face communion and fellowship with our God. Prayer is a diligent, searching exercise. You know, sometimes God occasionally withdraws from us to teach us to be diligent in our search, to increase our dependence on Him, to show us our need for Him. Prayer is seeking the face, the mind, and the will of God. And you know what? Prayers are not answered instantly, are they? We've been praying for one thing I can think of right now since the day this church began. Well, shortly afterwards, we've been praying for Maria for a job. That's three plus years. We're praying and praying and praying and praying. Is God just forgetting that prayer? Does God just never get to it? Is it on the bottom of his priority list? No. The Bible tells us the minute we begin to pray and ask for God in prayer, God is already rising to meet and answer that prayer. God is going to answer that prayer. But his timing is not always our schedule, our time. When we prayed about a place to meet, when we first began Casey Bible Church, I finished praying. I went out for a walk and I pleaded with God that he might open doors to show us where we could meet. I got back and there was already an email sitting on my computer waiting to tell me, hey, listen, that community center is available. If you want it, you're at the bottom of the list, but we'll put you to the top of the list, and you can have it if you want it. And we took it. God had already answered that prayer, even while I was still praying for that thing. Prayer is a diligent, searching exercise. Listen to Abraham's life. Abraham prayed for Isaac for how long? Anybody remember? Long time. Close. It was 25. Yeah, 75 to 100. He got the kid when he was 100 years old. 25 years he prayed every single day. I'm sure he went out there and on his knees with his hands lifted up to heaven, he cried out to God to answer, to fulfill the promise that God had made to him. You will have a son. You will become a nation. In fact, nations, plural, will come from you. And he kept praying, kept praying, kept praying. Remember the story about him and Abimelech? He goes down to, this, to the, the, I can't remember the city's name now, I think it might be Egypt, and Abimelech's the king there, and he says, this is Sarah, my sister, when she's actually his wife, and they go through the whole thing, and the Bible says that God closed all the wombs of all the women in, Sarah, in Abimelech's household. And at the end of that story, Abraham cries out to God 
to open the wombs. And the sense of the story is it's almost instantly. Can you imagine Abraham on his camel moving out of that city? Sarah's beside him. He's been praying for year after year after year after year after year for his wife. And the prayer is still unanswered. And Sarah is sitting there and she's still not pregnant. And behind him, all the women in the city are getting pregnant again. Because he's answered his prayer. What's the point of all that? God's timing is not our timing, but it's a diligent searching and seeking for God. It's going before God and not letting go. It's saying, Lord, I want to see my neighbor saved, and so I cry out every day that you will save my neighbor. Lord, I want to see this church grow. I want to see a revival come into this church, and so I ask every single day, Lord, revive us according to your word. Lord, I want to see my kids grow and walk with you. I want to see the young people in this church fired up filled with the joy of the Lord, committed to living and walking in obedience and in holiness. And I keep praying and I keep praying and I keep praying and I keep asking God. It's searching and not giving up. Some of us pray for something. We pray for one, two, three days and we give up. It's a persevering in prayer. It's a carrying on in prayer that God might answer those prayers. Abraham prayed like that and he waited and waited. And the Bible tells us that he did not even consider his body or Sarah's as good as dead, but he glorified God by carrying on in faith. Listen, prayer is a diligent searching for God. And the fifth point there, it's a searching for him. And this is the point I started to make earlier. What convicted me about this message, and by the way, most of the things I preach convict me one way or the other. In fact, pretty much everything does. But what convicted me the most about this was these words, they searched for him. And I thought, you know what? I went to open up my prayer list. I started reading through my prayer list. And you know how many things I pray for? How much I fill my prayer list with, please give me this and please give her that and please answer this and please provide that and I need this and I want that. And I started replaying in my own mind my prayer time from Monday night and I've been on my face crying out to God and I realized I had just prayed and asked for one thing after another, after another, after another, after another. And the Bible says they searched for him. I thought, wait a minute. Prayer isn't just about getting the stuff we need or we think we have to have. Prayer is about a diligent searching and seeking for Jesus. To get closer to him, to know him. I love my wife. I love spending time with my wife. My wife, in case you couldn't figure it out, is a really good cook. And I love it when she makes me certain things like chocolate self-sourcing pudding and stuff like that. You know, everybody should have it, right? It's great stuff. But if all I want my wife for is all the little things that she can do for me, there's something tragically wrong. And will my wife feel honored and delighted in if I said, you know, you need to come home right away because I'm really hungry and, and you make the best, best burgers and I'm really, and you know, the bed needs making and, and well, you know, the, the house needs cleaning and, and would you please come home because, you know, no, she won't. But wait a minute. How much do we do that to God? How much we come before God and the thing we are delighting in so much is all the stuff that he can give us. Is it right to pray and ask God for things? Yes, of course it is. But what's our overriding, our overdriving ambition? Is it for Jesus and him alone? Is to spend time with God, longing for God's presence, longing to have that relationship, that fellowship that we need so desperately and so badly. 
Prayer is about receiving, savoring, enjoying more of Christ. In the example of prayer from the disciples, their object of searching was to find Him. The greatest benefit of prayer is not obtaining the thing that we think we need. The greatest benefit of prayer is the increase, the deepening of my relationship with my God, my Savior, my Master, and my friend. You ever have those people in your life? You get together with them and you just enjoy. You can sit there for hours and just talk about stuff. Maybe it's talk about the Lord. And there is a deep relationship there. And it just, all the little trivial stuff just flies away. And right away, you're enjoying that friendship, that fellowship with that other person. That's what it ought to be like between us and God. They searched for him. Now, you could argue they were searching for him to get him to return and perform more miracles and cast out more demons and heal more sicknesses. And they probably were. That probably was part of what they wanted. But I also want us to see how although the text fits into its context, it also has significance in the phrase on its own. They just, they searched for him. I want us to be a people of God who pray for the things that we need, yes, but we also pray and desire and long for a relationship with the living God. Listen, Jesus Christ is the loveliest, the most glorious, the most beautiful of all beings in in his perfections. His presence in my life must be of greater worth than all the riches of the world. Because his presence in my life enables me to endure, even thrive, while not getting the stuff we ask for. How do we get through this life? Because of all the stuff God gives us? No. We get through this life because God gives gives us the one thing we could not do without, and that's himself. That's the key. If you have health but don't have Christ, it's nothing. It will crumble to dust and fly away. If we have wealth, if you had all the money in the world you could possibly want, you know what? It would not be enough. It's nothing. It would just crumble up and fly away. If we have the things we need without Christ, it's of no value to us whatsoever. It just crumbles up and destroys and fades. Having Christ will enable us to endure, to survive, to progress, to walk with Christ, whether we have that thing we are praying for or not. What does the psalmist say? We sing this song here at Casey Bible Church, and I want you to stop and check yourself. The psalmist says this, As the deer pants for the water, or the water brooks, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. Is that true? Hmm. Is it true? You ever see an animal that's thirsty? Well, you're looking at one who's thirsty. <laughs> you ever see some person that's gone without water for a certain amount of time? I heard about uh, cattle drives back in the 1800s in the American Old West. And they go across these great arid plains, and the cattle would begin to you see the heads would come up, and they begin to smell. They could smell the water from miles. And all of a sudden, the ones in front would begin to quicken their pace, and the stride would lengthen, and they would begin to go. And the cowboys would have to get around in front of them and try and keep them from running. Because what would happen is, because they were so thirsty for that water, they would literally stampede and crush each other in the drive to get to that water. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. Is that really what describes our life? Is that how you really want to be with God? Is there in your heart a thirst that says, I've got to have more of Christ. I've got to be in his presence. I've got to hear what he has to say. I've got to enjoy his word and just soak him up. 
Is my soul, is your soul, and we so thirsty that we just long to be with Christ, to enjoy him, never mind all the benefits that he provides. The psalmist says, my soul thirsts for the living God. Thirst is one of the most powerful driving factors that any man can know. They say you can last about 10 days or more, probably more, but a week or so without food, and about 10 hours, I think it is, about without water, not even, the less. Three days without water. Yeah, that's it. Three days without water. Is that the state of your soul? That you thirst and long for God like a deer longs for water like that? When was the last time we were so thirsty for God that all we could think about, all we could focus on was getting Him? The problem, beloved, is that we are so easily satisfied with the world's trash and trinkets that we have no appetite for God whatsoever. You know what I said? We're so easily distracted. (laughs) We are. And the problem with us, we're so materialistic. We're so used to having to have what the neighbors have and as much of what the neighbors have and as best and the the highest model and the neatest thing and all the rest of that stuff. We're so materialistically driven that we have no appetite left for God. May God change our hearts from the inside out to give us that driving thirst for God and for God alone. When was the last time we felt such a groaning in our spirit that what we wanted more than anything else was to be in God's presence, quietly savoring Him? At this point, I kind of feel compelled to ask another question. And that's for those of us who don't know Christ. You have a problem, whether you know it or not. And the great problem that you face is a problem of sin. And just like the, the Mark has been using the stories and the pictures of demoniacs and disease-ridden and even lepers, all of them describe some aspect of sin to us. The demoniac reminds us that we are without Christ under the power of the wicked one. We are without, we're lost. We're still in his influence. Without Christ, we're like a leper. Our bodies are covered in the oozing, revolting, disgusting marks of sin. Without Christ, we're like diseased. There's something inherently wrong with us that's crippling us and making us unable to function the way we were designed to. It's like a watch. I use the illustration all the time. Like a watch has a design function. It's supposed to tell you the time. Like it's 5 after 12. I should be quitting five minutes ago. It's time to quit. But if that watch gets water in there or gets dust in there, gets dirt in there, all of a sudden the gears and the mechanism cannot work anymore and no longer does it tell me what time it really is. And the reality is that sin is like that in our lives. It prevents us and stops us and it dirties us and fills us with the inability to do what we were designed to do, which is to have fellowship with the living God, right? And so we need desperately to have somebody take care of that and wash us clean and set us free and make us restored and healed and able to have that relationship with God. I'm crying out to you this morning. If you're here... If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've got a problem. And God, if there is a desire in your heart, and God put it there, that you long to be free. You long to be free from the sin that cruds up, dirties up, hinders, and destroys your life. All I can say is cry out to God. The disciples, they searched for Him. And what I'm trying to say is this. The gospel message is, is, listen, Jesus Christ wants to set you free, wash you clean, but you must go and search for him. 
And the promise of Scripture is that if we diligently search him out, he will he'll reward us and we'll know and we'll find him. The promise is if we search for him, we will find him. Diligently seeking, we'll find him. But you know, there's something else in this little passage here. And I was, I was um, thinking over this and it kind of hit me about a week or so ago. Jesus came for a time and he stood that doorway of the house and he healed all those people or many of them, many of the people there. Not all of them. And the next day, the word spread through the whole town that this, this man, Jesus, was here and he was healing the sick and he was casting out demons and he was teaching with great authority and so on. And all of them come looking for him. There's so many more that want to be set free from their illness. So many more want to be set free from their diseases who want to be set free from the demons that possess them and so on. And they all come seeking and looking for Jesus. And Jesus is off in a secluded place and he's praying and the disciples come and get him and he says, no, we must go somewhere else because I want to preach the gospel in other places as well. And they leave. I kept thinking to myself, what about all those other people? How many of them went back home tragically disappointed because they were unable to be set free from their disease, unable to be set free from sickness, unable to be set free from the demons that possessed them? And here's my question to you. We preach the gospel in this church age that we do that there's always time. You can come to Christ. As soon as you turn to Christ, he'll be there and you'll find him and you'll find forgiveness. The reality is, my friend, that that is not the case. There will come a day when we will search or some will search for God, longing for repentance and longing for belief, and they will not be able to find it because God will have withdrawn himself and moved on. Oh, oh, wait a minute. No, no that can't be right. No, because, because you know, um, look, there's always hope. Turn to Jesus now, today, tomorrow, on your deathbed. You can find forgiveness. No. Well, that's a mistaken thinking. The reality of the gospel is there will come a time, like the Bible talks about Cain, and how Cain sought for repentance with tears and was unable to find it. He could not find it. There will come a time when some of us will go looking for the Savior and will be, we'll be unable to find him. Barry Horner was mentioned in his message last week, if you were here, and just touched on a little bit. And that's the truth of the Bible. There will come a day when there will be no more option. And so I'm pleading with you, with all my heart, seek the Lord while he may be found. The disciples, they had an appetite for God. They knew they needed him. They went and they searched for him and they found him. Now you say you just contradicted yourself because you said if we diligently seek the Lord, we will find him. Yes, but my answer is seek now. Start now. Don't put it off thinking you can do it some other day. I had a friend in Canada. Uh, sadly, he and his wife have both passed away now. And he was, he was a, a great guy. And I mean great in every sense of the word. He was a big man, about 6'4 and, and bigger than me, if you can imagine that. And he was a police officer. And he used to, he was a reserve police officer for the Vancouver Reserve Police. And he was a believer. And he was a gospel preacher. Everywhere he went, he preached the gospel. And uh, his job as part of the Vancouver Reserve Police Force, if they had to inform of a death, They'd say, hey, Arnie, can you uh, take your Bible and go and be with these people and tell them that their loved one has died in an accident or whatever? And he said he never forgot the story of going and, and having to tell an older lady that her son had died. 
As the story is, he found out, it panned out that this lady had for months and even years had been pleading with her son, trust the Lord. You've got to trust the Lord. You've got to turn towards Christ. You never know forgiveness. You'll never know real life and real peace until you turn to Christ. And finally in frustration, he said, look, promise, before I die, look, I promise I'll turn to Christ. You'll know that I'll be in heaven. I promise I'll do it, okay? Just get off my back. He walked out that night, and he was killed instantly in a car accident. And Arnie's sitting there, and he said, you know, if it's any comfort to you, and it wasn't, he died instantly. He never felt a thing. He never knew what hit him. Of course, that dear lady sat there realizing her son was forever lost. My Santa scare people into heaven? Well, maybe, if necessary. But you know what the reality is? You don't know the day of your death. You don't know the day that God will say enough is enough. God sent Christ to them and he stood there and he taught the word of God. He went out and he cast out demons and he healed the sick and he dealt with people at the door. And he offered them the forgiveness and the hope and the love that God had for them. And he got up the next morning and he disappeared and he walked away. And many were still looking for them. They hadn't received the healing they wanted. Don't delay. Don't think that maybe later in life I'll come back to this. Don't think that maybe I can just put it off and I can live my life anyway. I can, I can have the best of both worlds, you know. Here's what I'll do. I'll keep a Bible handy and, and you know, I'll kind of keep one foot in the church and I'll kind of live, you know, on the surface when I'm around my Christian friends. I'll put on that Christian face and I'll talk about God once in a while and maybe I'll, I'll read my Bible once in a while and maybe I'll sort of just try and live that two-sided life. Everyone I'm with when I'm on Sunday morning and my friends, they'll think I'm a Christian. When I'm at work and, you know, I'm with those guys that just hate God and love sin, you know, I can just love sin and hate God too right along with them. And nobody will know. You want to describe the most miserable person in the world? I just did. You know how I know that? I tried it for years. I realized you cannot live that way. What God wants from us is to turn to, to repent of sin, to be truly sorry of the sin that we have committed. Turn towards Christ, believing the gospel and following Christ, which means we leave every single thing behind. We leave all the things that we thought made us something behind. We leave every sinful habit. We leave every worldly idea. We leave it all behind and we walk after Christ and we say the way he goes, where he goes, how he goes, I will go too. And Jesus said, you know what? You want to be my disciple? Unless you deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Well, we never got to point six and point seven, but basically they found him. Prayer is a faith-filled exercise. And the seventh one, they spoke to him. Prayer is the enjoyment of fellowship and communion with God. I think we sort of talked about that along the way. God, I don't know your heart. I don't know where you stand truly before God. And I could have maybe said things differently this morning, maybe a little more coherent, I don't know. But I'm absolutely convinced of something else, that the Spirit of God works in spite of the preacher. Thank the Lord for that. But I don't know where you stand before God. When the lights go out at nighttime and you're laying there on your bed and God begins to speak, 
and call your name. What do you do? You shut it out, drown it out, or do you turn towards God and follow Him? I can't answer the question of where you stand, but I know one thing for sure. You know in your heart of hearts before the living God where you stand before Him. You know a day to come when Jesus stands there and says, sheep to this side and goats to this side, where you will go. And you might come back and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I not? I, I sang on the music team. Lord, didn't I, I helped out at camp. Lord, you know, I, I passed out tracks for the rest of the church. You know, Lord, I was faithful. Lord, I read my Bible every day. Lord, I did all these things. And he will look at you and say, depart from me. I never knew you. Did not do the will of my Father in heaven. Where do you stand before God? You need before the day is out on your bed in a quiet place to answer that question. You need God to ask God to answer it for you. Where do you stand before God? You need to cry out to God and go searching for him. And search for him until you find him. And have that fellowship, have that communion. Know what it is to be forgiven. Let's, let's stand and we'll, we'll uh, pray and then we'll sing in one more song. Father in heaven, we give you thanks again this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for the example he set for us. That prayer is costly. That prayer requires being alone with you. Father, that prayer is a faith-filled exercise. Prayer is a diligent searching for God. And Father, we thank you that the greatest gift we can have in response to our prayer is not the things that we're asking for. The greatest thing we can have in response to our prayer is a deeper, richer, sweeter fellowship with you. Father in heaven, this morning, we cry out to you for all of us. Father, please help us. Father, please draw us closer to yourself. Lord, some of us are beginning to slip away from the narrow path and turn around and walk back towards destruction. Father, put roadblocks and hedges in their way. Father, I plead with you that you would take those 